Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jesse Robinson, the pastor here. If you're new, I would love to meet you um, just right back there after the service. So my wife and I moved to Charlottesville about seven years ago. Um, Jessica, my wife, is from California, and I don't know if you know this about the state, but it suffers from a bit of provincialism. Um, she had never heard of Charlottesville before. Um, and I'm from Texas, which also suffers from some provincialism. I'd never heard of Charlottesville. So when we arrived here, we had very low, uh, pretty much a blank slate. We had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And those early experiences were honestly very confusing. Um, my best friend is much fancier than I am. And so he came into town and took me to Marie Bette. And that was this Texan's first experience the French bakery. Um, so fancy. Like, I didn't know any of the words. Just give me some eggs and some toast. No idea what this madame is, whatever that is. So I was like, okay, Charlottesville. It's, I, 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 I'm pretty sure it has the most French bakeries per capita in the U.S., but like, what is this cosmopolitan place that I'm in? And then when I was on the grounds at UVA, um, it, it's a little, it's a, it's a different feel, isn't it? Um, there's lots of uh, like vineyard vines. I'd never heard of vineyard vines. Um, it's a little preppy. So like, oh, oh, okay, Charles, I, I, I kind of get you. And then I needed a haircut. And so I went to Wayside Barbershop. Uh, now, if you've never been to Wayside Barbershop, if you've ever been to Wayside Chicken, it's kind of the same feel, okay? <laughs> Um, it's like, all right, I, we got some country here, right? Uh, I'm from Texas. I get that. And so as, as I've gotten to know Charlottesville, as, as I've gotten to know you, one thing that's really interesting to me is Charlottesville is kind of like a Rorschach lot. Like, what do you see this city as? I have friends talk about how big and cosmopolitan Charlottesville is, which usually my wife, who's from L.A., just laughs last. Um, one friend moved near the downtown mall to have, and I quote, an urban experience. <laughs> urban experience, right? Um, and others of you are like fleeing from the big cities, right? The New Yorks and the, the DCs for, for like a, a small town feel, you know? And because of this mix of urban, rural, Charles was paradigmatic for the kind of cultural polarization that we have been facing over the last two years as a country. Uh, amidst that, like that cultural diversity is here in this room. We live all over Charlottesville, Albemarle, right? I, I sometimes like to boast that if I know your address, I have a pretty good idea how old you are. Like, like what area of the city you live in, or if you live in the county. I also have a pretty good guess, like, Maybe um, how long you've been in Charlottesville, right? If you live in Ivy, it's a good chance you've been here for a couple decades. If you live in Crozet, probably the last 10 years. And in each of these are kind of these microcultures that are in Charlottesville. And sometimes there are political implications to that, right? Who our neighbors are, who are we rubbing shoulders with? And so, as we think about this, there's this big question, like, how do we get along together? 
how do we get along? There are some in our congregation who are employed by, the, by UVA or the hospital, and you pretty much like had to wear a mask for two years straight. There are others of you who have never put on a mask. <laughs> You've never put on a mask, uh, except when we made you at the church for, for a little bit. Um, there's differences. There's cultural differences. Last year, Christianity Today, President Timothy Dalrymple, he noted that there are these fractures in the church. He said, quote, new fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement. Fractures that do not run along the usual regional, denominational, ethnic, or political lines. Couples, families, friends, and congregations, once united in their commitment to Christ, once united in their commitment to Christ, are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they're not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to each other. So how do we get along? That's the question that I want to ask today. Now, we're in the midst of a sermon series entitled Begging Jesus. And so we are observing times when the desperate come to Jesus, begging for healing, for forgiveness, for mercy. Today, though, we're going to look at a different kind of plea. We're going to be looking at a plea that Paul makes to the Roman church for unity, for harmony and unity. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 14, where you can look on in your bulletin. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, the NIV this morning. It's a little bit easier to understand. Romans 14.1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? For their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. And whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to the Lord. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And then 15.5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in praying the Lord's blessing? Father in heaven, thank you that you feed us with your word. Lord, may we be hungry 
And may your spirit take what you've said, what you've spoken, and apply it to each of us where we need to hear it. May we see Jesus high and lifted up, O Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. So the sermon thesis, you actually have it right there. It's verse 7 of chapter 15. If you look back down, the very last line of your text. I couldn't have said it better than Paul. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. There's three phrases, three clauses, and there we're going to take each one of those. Okay, the first one is the command, accept one another. The second is the cause, just as Christ accepted you. And the third is the consequence, to bring praise to God. So the cause, sorry, the command, the cause, and the consequence. Let's jump in the first one, the command, accept one another. So what's the context here? Look at verse 1. It says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Disputable matters. What are these disputable matters? Well, he goes on, verse 2, one person's faith allows him to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. So the early church was comprised of Christians from two different backgrounds, Jewish backgrounds and those from Gentile. Now, the Jews had a litany of prohibited foods, mostly meats. And living in a Gentile city like Rome, it was difficult to get kosher meat in the markets. And so it was just easier not to eat meat for them. But these Jewish Christians are sitting in church next to Gentile Christians who've always known the glory of bacon and cheeseburgers, right? In fact, maybe the Gentiles went out after service to cook out for bacon cheeseburgers. And as you might imagine, the, uh, the Jewish Christians were a little frustrated at that. So that's one disputable matter, this food. There's an issue of food. Paul mentions another one in verse 5. He says, One person considers one day more sacred than another, and another considers every day alike. Now again, the Jews had a whole liturgical calendar of feasts and holy days that they observed. And now to be fair to the Jewish Christians... Their diets and their calendar were not strictly, merely religious, right? They were cultural. They've been doing this from birth, right? They have celebrated these festivals from infancy. When, when, when an American becomes a Christian, they don't stop celebrating the 4th of July and Thanksgiving, right? And so you can, you can feel some of the Jewish Christians like, of course they're going to celebrate this, this day. This is part of their culture. Now, the problem was not their observance not their observance. Paul recognizes there's these two different cultures that are competing for each other. And he actually doesn't judge that. What is problematic is the meaning ascribed to the, to the observance and their treatment of other Christians who disagree. Okay? What's problematic is the meaning ascribed to it and their treatment of the Christians who disagree differently. We're going to talk about that second part. So Paul says to the strong, those who eat meat, don't treat those who don't with contempt. With contempt. Now, when you think about the word contempt, right, or, or despise, there's this kind of arrogance of like, I know better, and how, how foolish, how narrow-minded you silly Jewish Christians are. Like, I've got this freedom. I can eat cheeseburgers, right? 
But meanwhile, on the other side, what are the Jewish Christians doing? Well, they're looking at the Gentile Christians and they're judging. That's the word that Paul uses. They're judging the Gentile Christians. They're not as committed, as, as righteous, as observant, as clean. And Paul says, stop judging and despising. Both of you are wrong. Both of you are wrong. Now, what is this acceptance? He says, accept one another. Well, it's obviously not judging. I think, I think we can think of judging as a... Judging can become an old word for us too quickly. So I want to give you maybe a new angle on judging. Uh, judging is this kind of feeling like, feeling like you're a little bit better than them, than someone else, right? That's, there's part of this judgment of like, you want to feel better about yourself. And so you just put them maybe a little bit lower. And Paul says, that you've got to stop. Accept one another, he says. Accept one another in what? In these disputable matters. So Paul immediately ratchets down the stakes. Now, you need to know that Paul is no cultural relativist. He's not just keeping the peace for, for, uh, for at all costs. We know this. We know that when the gospel is at stake, Paul becomes like a, a, he becomes zealous. He becomes like a bulldog. Like when you read Galatians, Paul is saying, stop preaching this heresy. Stop. The gospel is at stake in Galatians. But this is Romans. Romans 14, Paul has a very different tone. Why? Because he says these things we're talking about in Romans are disputable matters. Disputable. Meaning like, we can have a good conversation. I can, I can maybe see how you could go either way on that, right? Disputable matters. Diet. The church calendar. He says don't quarrel or fight over them. Now, it may be a shock to some of us that there are disputable matters. <laughs> some of us feel such strong convictions about everything. Um, comedian Norm MacDonald has recently noted that he says, quote, everyone has an opinion these days. He says when he was young, it wasn't that way. People would have maybe six opinions. <laughs> right. Today, not so much, right? Everyone has an opinion. So the question is, like, how do we know what qualifies as a disputable matter? Well, the church has a technical name for this, these, these disputable matters. It's adiaphora. Adiaphora, a Greek term that means indifferent things, indifferent things. And it refers to anything which is neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture. Anything which is neither commanded nor forbidden in scriptures. So we're not talking about like adultery or gossip like, or bearing false witness. All those, those are not adiaphora. Those are very clearly prohibited in scripture. Right? But let me give you an example of what adiaphora. Like what do you do about schooling for your kids? Or what did you do for schooling? Public school? Private school? Private Christian? homeschooling. Now, Scripture commands us to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, right? That is, that's not adiaphora. But how we do schooling, that's adiaphora. There's not a clear command in Scripture that this is, you must go to Christian private school. Now, adiaphora does not mean that we shouldn't seek to think of biblically or 
prudently. In fact, that's what biblical wisdom is. It's taking the scriptures, taking biblical principles, and applying it to the messiness of life. And the more, the more biblical that we can think, the safer we actually are. And yet, the realm of adiaphora is actually one where Christian liberty of conscience reigns. Conscience. Now, conscience, Paul says, is a gift from God. And it's actually meant to be a guide in these matters of disputable things. He says in verse 5, Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, he says, don't let your conscience be undermined. Now, by the way, Paul has an opinion on this issue of food. He says later in chapter 14, it's not in your text, he says later, he's convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But, he says, if someone does regard something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. In other words, Paul says, hey, I got an opinion on this, but you need to listen to your conscience. You need to listen to your conscience over my opinion. Now, our Reformed tradition has some strong language here about the conscience. It says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it. Again, if it's not in his word, there is this liberty. That's where this conscience is a gift for us. And it's wrong for us, the church leadership, to bind your conscience. There are some things that are between you and the Lord. Like if one of you comes to me and says, hey, who do I vote for next week? I think it's next week. More than that, I don't know. I'll figure it out later. And so the way you ask that question, like, I'll pray for you. I would love to chat about how you might pray for But it's not mine to tell you who to vote for. Right? That would be binding your conscience. Now, now, remember Paul's point here, that when our conscience leads us to different conclusions amongst each other, then we still have to accept those who might disagree with us, those whose conscience have taken them elsewhere. That's his point. I want you to accept one another. Now, diets and the church calendar. I dare say that those are not the hot-button issues at Trinity, okay? <laughs> but we have our disputable matters, don't we? Just to take a couple issues from the last few years. Masks or not? Amen. Do we, do we gather? Do we gather or not? BLM. Vaccines or not? Should you vote? Who did you vote for? These are disputable matters, right? These are matters of prudence and conscience. Thus, there are occasions for acceptance. Do you accept those who disagree with you? Now, I know that some of you think that the COVID vaccine was God's gift to mankind, an answer to prayer to bring an end to the pandemic. And I know others of you think the vaccine is one of the biggest hoaxes of recent days. What matters more to the Lord is less about who's right and more about how we treat each other. Did you hear me? What matters more is not who's right, but how we actually love those who disagree with us. We accept each other in these disputable matters. So that's the command. 
Now let's look at the cause, the reason. He says, we accept each other because Christ has accepted us. Now Paul immediately answers with two interconnected reasons. The first puts us in our place, and the second elevates us above our place. Let's look at this first part. The first puts us in our, in our place. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. He says, in Christ we are merely servants. And we as servants do not have the right to judge other servants' performance, right? Fellow employees don't do performance reviews on each other. Supervisors do, which is entirely proper since they are the ones giving the orders. They're the ones that write the job descriptions. And so they have the authority to judge. Fellow employees, servants, they do not. And so Paul says, you're a servant. You don't get to judge your other the servant of the master. Now, I've said this over and over again, but the reason we don't judge is because judgment is the Lord's work. You see, we don't judge because when we judge, we are playing God as if we were all righteous and all-knowing. Judging a brother is an act of heinous pride and idolatry in the scriptures because we're putting ourselves in the place of God. That's Paul's point in verses 10 through 12. Look at 10, verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. In other words, he says, you're not the judge. You will be, the, you will be judged. You're not the judge. You are the judged. And when you judge your brother, you're ironically heaping up judgment for yourself. So Paul first puts us in our place. We have no business judging a fellow servant. We are not the master. We are not the judge. But the more profound reason comes at the end of verse 3. He says, don't judge or despise your brother. Why? For God has accepted them. God has accepted them. In other words, justification. Right? Throughout the book of Romans, Paul explains that we are justified, accepted by God, by faith alone. Why? Because of Christ alone, right? In Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, meaning that both Jews and Gentiles are not worthy of God's acceptance. But, Paul says in verse 24, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. In other words, he says, everyone is unworthy. No one should be accepted by God. Everyone should be rejected. But because Jesus has died, because Jesus has died and paid for those sins, that unworthiness, anyone who comes to Jesus and believes and puts their faith in him is justified, is accepted by the Lord. He says, they are justified, accepted by God, not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so let's go back to the problem. The Jewish and Gentile Christians are judging and despising each other over food. Paul says, that's not what makes you acceptable. Whether you eat or drink, it's trivial. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, he says, food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. You're not accepted because of food, Paul says. You're accepted because of Christ. You're accepted because of Christ. He is the one 
who brought you near to God. That's why Paul calls these Jewish Christians weak in faith, because they are attributing too much meaning to their diet, as if their acceptance or justification needed to be supplemented. In other words, Paul is telling us, like, we so often think about our justification in purely vertical terms, right? I'm just, I stand before the Lord righteous in Christ. But Paul is saying, I want you to apply that justification horizontally. You accept one another because God has accepted them. Look out. Look out. And when we judge or despise each other on disputable matters, it's like we're amending the gospel. We're saying, you need Christ and you need to be fill in the blank. You need to be a Christian school parent. You need to be a Democrat. You need Christ and be a Republican, right? We're amending something else. We're saying there's something else that is our righteousness. And Paul says, no. You are accepted solely because of Jesus Christ. That's the only grounds for justification. Now, I think this is a way bigger problem for us than we realize. You see, I'm a man of strong opinions, and I come from a people of strong opinions. You. We can so easily make our acceptance conditional on a person's agreement with us on our pet issue, right? On our pet issue. Paul says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. When we judge each other for our convictions or our practices, we're being more restrictive than the Lord. We are playing God. You see, the cause of our acceptance of each other is because Christ has accepted us. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Now let's go to the third point. What's the consequence of this? In order to bring praise to God. The consequence of this acceptance is the glory of God. So as accepted brothers and accepted brothers, we actually become servants of the glory of God. That's the consequence. Become servants of God's glory. Now we've noted that the adiaphora morally indifferent things in and of themselves. But in another sense, friends, there is no such thing as adiaphora. What do I mean? That's Paul's point in verses 6 through 9. Look at verse 6. He says, Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone if we live we live for the lord and if we die we die for the lord so whenever whether we live or die we belong to the lord for this very reason christ died and returned to life so, so he might be the lord of both the living and the dead what i what is paul saying here he's saying that every part of your life is his every part of your life is his if you are a servant then you are made for God to serve him. And there is nothing that we do that's indifferent to that. There's nothing we do that is indifferent to that. So if I'm eating meat, meat in and of itself cannot bring me any closer to God. But how I eat that meat, am I doing it with thanksgiving? Am I looking and saying, God, thank you for this? 
That is what consecrates it. It makes it, it, it makes me a wholehearted servant of the Lord. And he's saying, do that with everything, right? Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. There is no adiaphora because you've been bought body and soul to the Lord in his death and resurrection, right? That's, that's when he buys us. It says that this is, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. He says, we belong to the Lord. Friends, you belong to the Lord. If you put your faith in Christ, if you baptize in his name and confess him as your Lord, you are his servant. You are his servant. Yes, you are accepted by God, and you are more dearly loved than you thought possible, yet you are no longer your own. And your rights have been given up to the Lord. You are a slave, and you exist to bring honor and glory to Christ your master. You see, every one of us wake up in the morning like we are the star of our sitcom, right? Life is about us. But friends, you are a servant. Your ambitions, however grand, your job, your family, whatever it is, it's not about you. It is about the Lord. And so there's no such thing as adiaphora. Everything in our lives are meant to be consecrated to the Lord. Christian liberty is not about freedom for freedom's sake. The end of our Christian freedom, the Westminster Confession says, is to serve the Lord. Is to serve the Lord. Bill Bright was an incredible evangelist and entrepreneur. He was a seminary dropout, pretty much because he just couldn't stop evangelizing. And he started a ministry at the campus of UCLA back in 1951. And that ministry at one campus led to many more. And now you might know this as Crew or a Campus Crusade for Christ. It's, it's on 5,300 campuses, Crew, Bill Bright. Incredible. Now, back in 2002, Bill Bright was on his deathbed, pretty much. And he, had, he was able to get up to receive this award, this, this Lifetime Achievement Award. And, and so as they're presenting it to Bill Bright, he's in a wheelchair, he's on oxygen. They read what's on the, the award. It says, it says, leader, pioneer, mentor, and the friend of leaders for 50 years. And Bill, in his very weak voice, he says, one thing you should have added, a slave of Jesus Christ. A slave of Jesus Christ. Because the greatest privilege that I or anyone else could ever have is following his model, becoming a slave. So any of the good things that you've said to, to about me belong to my master. I'm his slave. And that goes along really well with the rest of our verse here. Verse 7, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. So we started this out by asking, how do we get along? And now we have some tools. We, have some, we, we know the adiaphora, we know the conscience, we have acceptance and justification. And it's curious because Paul is essentially giving us license. He's giving license to the Romans to disagree about how they live and worship. And he does so for the sake of unity. Because he says, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And he says, you are not alone in this. You're, we are surrounded by a great cloud of servants 
who also bear the name of their master. And our master demands that we accept one another, that we refrain from judging and despising and feeling superior to them. In fact, our master calls us not only to serve him, but to serve each other. To serve each other. And Paul says, if my eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I will gladly give it up. Is not my brother of infinite more value than meat, than the right school, than the right boat? Christ died for this brother, Paul will say. So Paul actually urges us to have unity within our diversity, and it's all about the unity comes from us glorying in the Lord. So we can be unified in service to God's glory, even as we differ in that service. And do you know what brings God substantial glory? When we, in all our cultural diversity, all our varied convictions, sing praise together in one voice. In a couple of moments, when we sing together, we are honoring the Lord with one voice, His servants, friends. And that brings Him such delight. Because what it shows, what it shows us and what it shows this world is that there is something more valuable and treasured than our mere cultural differences. When we come together from varied convictions, varied political affiliations, varied backgrounds, rich, poor, middle class, wherever, when we come together we are say, and worshiping the Lord, we're saying that whatever cultural standards of beauty, of goodness, of truth we may have, that the Lord Jesus exceeds them all, that he is the pearl of great price, sacrificing everything that we might have him. Friends, do you see the stakes of our unity? That when we value and treasure Jesus, that is the ground of our unity. And we can abide those differences in disputable matters. Let me end by praying Paul's prayer for ourselves in chapter 15, verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give us the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.